Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should, if anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop for Caregivers Coping with a Loved One's Prostate Cancer. And we know that caregivers often spend so much time being concerned about the loved one with prostate cancer that they often don't have time for themselves, and we want to be sure today that we spend time with all of you to address your concerns. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as four other prostate cancer organizations, Prostate Cancer Foundation, the Prostate Net, us to International Prostate Cancer Education and Support Network, and Zero, the End of Prostate Cancer. And so um, it's because of that collaboration and your interest in our topic today that we have over 528 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, and we have international participants from Argentina, Canada, United Kingdom, Japan, and Venezuela. So this is a bit of a global call, actually, uh, quite a few other countries participating as well in the call today, um, and we appreciate your being on the call today. Today's program is supported, and this is a two-part series, so this is part two of the series. So today's series has been supported by Pfizer, Genomic Health, Inc., Estella Scientific and Medical Affairs, Inc., and motivation, and really want to thank them for their support of this program and for their corporate collaboration in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. And Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases. Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Dr. Sloven is also Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Weill College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven is going to address the important role of the caregiver with the healthcare team, caring for your loved one with prostate cancer, and tips on working with your healthcare team on to manage your loved one's pain, neuropathy, and discomfort. And it's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven. Thank you, Carolyn, and good afternoon, everyone. I think you heard in the introduction that there are a lot of organizations out there that will reach out to patients and really be a bastion of information and not to mention how to help a caregiver. I'm looking at this topic now through a curtain of being a medical oncologist, not a nurse, but a medical oncologist, although sometimes I, I think I do have a nursing degree, which is actually an honor. But in general, I would say that uh, as a medical oncologist, we cannot take care of the patients ourselves. We need a team. That team includes nurses, radiation oncologists, nutritionists, uh, a whole group of people who's only goal is to really help the patient and, believe it or not, the caregiver as well. The caregiver is in a very unique position. That's the person that often comes in accompanying the patient. It could be a spouse, it could be a partner, a friend, a niece, a nephew, a brother, a sister, or just somebody in the community who knows the individual. We often rely on that person to give us an update on how the patient is doing, particularly when the patients are somewhat reluctant to discuss things. Sometimes they're in pain, sometimes they're tired, or sometimes uh, they're in an acute situation whereby the only person who really could tell us or instruct us as to what the events have been uh, that led to this uh, problem happens to be that particular caretaker. Being a caretaker certainly is not easy. Uh, it's a full-time job for a lot of people. And I think the most important thing that one has to realize as a caretaker is that you are not alone. You become part of the medical team. That is often to say that you should not feel put upon that everything that you need to do for the patient is on you because it's not. I've had a patient who from 20 years in my practice where the, as he became more uh, toward end of life, his wife said, gee, I want to know everything about hospice care. I want to know everything about pain. I want to know everything about management. That's not what this is about. 
there are professionals who do this. It's great to have a, a working knowledge, but the point is that you're not alone. As a caretaker, which is often very frightening, we often face uh, family issues. And that is very often a mother or a sister or whomever who accompanies the patient uh, may suddenly be relegated to the background when other relatives suddenly emerge. And that's usually sons or daughters or nieces or nephews who have never been involved in the care but suddenly decide that they're going to make a change to help the individual. They are going to be the advocate because they feel that the current caretaker is not being a reasonable advocate or they may decide that uh, they want to take the patient to a different doctor for another opinion or they just there may be so many sons and daughters that none of them talk and every time the patient comes in you're dealing with another relative and that's happened to me on many an occasion where I've dealt with two sons a daughter and then two daughter-in-laws and every week was another relative who had to be in-serviced if you will in terms of what was going on with the patient that makes it very hard and that's why it's so important that if you do have a big family that either a particular son or daughter or sibling, at least one person who will be able to disseminate the information will be there on a routine basis to accompany the caretaker if, in fact, the caretaker uh, it continues to come. So it's, it, you know, very often these uh, these uh, sons or daughters, nieces, nephews, whatever, uh, sort of come in as uh, heroes or heroines wanting to rescue the individual uh, patient from anything that we might be doing that might be different than they've read about on the Internet or what another friend has gone through. So I would say that it's important that everybody knows. In fact, what I often do is insist that patients who come in with uh, with a spouse or a friend or whatever bring in a son or daughter or a particular relative early on so I get to know this person. One or two visits is more than enough so that I know that at some point this might be the person to whom I will be disseminating information. Now, working with a healthcare team is an enormous responsibility for any healthcare provider. And that means that if you are in charge as a caregiver, you have to deal with a lot of people. You're the person dealing with the, the pain doctor, the psychiatrist, the radiation oncologist, your medical oncologist. Well, quite frankly, you don't have to be the one, although I know it feels that you're carrying the onus of the world on your shoulders. Usually, the medical oncologist is give the term captain of the team and everybody else is a consultant working with that captain of the team. It is very important when a patient comes in that, at least as a medical oncologist, I often like to know how the patient's caretaker is doing as well. Now, sometimes it works out very well in that uh, there's a good rapport, but there are times that the caretaker is overwhelmed and a lot of time is spent in clinic uh, dealing with a caretaker, a caretaker who might be weeping or is just exasperated or angry. And unfortunately, we spend more time with that caregiver than we do with the patient, and that ends up causing issues. And that's where bringing in psychiatry, bringing in a social worker is so terribly important because that person needs to vent. Unfortunately, during a clinic visit, it's extremely hard. The other thing that's very important as a caregiver is that, yes, the doctor wants to know what you have to say. I certainly do of every wife who comes in. However, what gets to be very difficult sometimes is the fact that the wife is, or the caregiver is leading the conversation and the patient says nothing. And it almost infantilizes the, the patient. And so I often say to the wife or whomever, let the patient tell me what's going on. I definitely want to hear what you have to say. But it's extremely important because the other reason I wanted to have the patient talk to me, it's a neurologic exam. Is the speech fluent? Is the patient appropriately gesturing? Is the patient making eye contact? Is the patient uncomfortable? So talking to that patient is one of the most important things I can do without interruption. Similarly, interpretation is very difficult. So I've had patients call up, or actually their caretakers call up, with their reporting a symptom, but it's based on what their interpretation is. And I can tell you right now, the one thing that can be very risky to the patient is interpretation from somebody who is not a healthcare professional. So somebody's wife or partner or whomever may call in and say the patient has excruciating pain uh, or is, is not walking. Here's a perfect case in point where I had to make an emergency call to a patient's uh, home, and the wife said, he's not walking at all. I said, walking as in not, is he paralyzed? And then the husband got in and says, no, I'm just walking because I'm in pain. So... Uh, 
there is nothing that I can understand unless I talk to the patient. And when I spoke with the patient, then I found out that he is, in fact, walking, but he had accompanying pain, which is very different than what the wife said. So I inadvertently could make a decision or recommendation based on somebody else's interpretation, which is so important in terms of why I should, or any of us, including nursing, should be speaking with the patient himself, if that's appropriate. Patients have a lot of issues with pain and neuropathy, you know, numbness and tingling in the fingers and toes, sometimes from concurrent medical conditions like diabetes, sometimes from chemotherapy. Sometimes uh, there are sensory neuropathies or numbness and tingling that due to back injuries like spinal stenosis. So there's a lot of reasons why people have this. This needs to be brought to somebody's attention, namely the doctor or the nurse, and that's because it can be treated. It can be treated by further evaluation with imaging to see if we can radiate if something's causing this numbness or tingling from the disease on the spine, or there are medications such as gabapentin, uh, Neurontin. There, there are drugs that can be used to alleviate these symptoms. I think the most important thing that one has to come away with from this little seminar this afternoon is that no one is alone. The patient is not alone, the caregiver is not alone, and the family is not alone. There are a lot of different ways that the care team can help you. The social workers are wonderful because they can call, they can follow, they can refer. Psychiatry is wonderful. Neurology is wonderful. I mean, we have a lot of disciplines. That's why we're here. One should not be fearful of reporting symptoms and saying, well, I'm going to see the doctor next week. We'll wait till then. Because acuteness of these of a new problem could lead to something that could be irreversible. And I would strongly encourage everybody that if you do have something that is new, please don't wait to go see your doctor. I've had that happen now twice with one patient with the same discussion of, well, we're coming in anyway. No. If someone has a symptom, you call up, you act on it now because it may be irrevocable in the future in terms of the patient's survival and any other problem that could ensue. So I'm going to hand this back to you, Carolyn, and as always, thank you very much for doing what you do. Oh, well, thank you, Dr. Slovin. That was outstanding, and as always, and also just really setting a wonderful tone for caregivers to understand how important it is and how accessible the team is and how many members of the team there are for people that want to talk with someone about planning and going forward. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos is actually a bit of her own healthcare team. She's both an RN, an MSW, and a doctor of public health. And she's clinical research manager, division of medical affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos is going to be addressing a number of things, deciding to become a caregiver, the unique stresses and rewards of caregiving, stresses of family, friends, and loved ones, long-distance caregiving, coping with holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, and special occasions, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, and lastly, but never leastly, is the importance of self-care for caregivers. So it is my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Carolyn, for uh, that introduction. And good afternoon to everyone in the U.S. and, of course, to our international listeners. Today we're going to talk about many important topics, and these are topics that affect and involve the entire family when caring for a loved one diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, Dr. Slovin provided an excellent overview of the importance of direct communication between the physician and the patient. And she also stressed the importance and the benefits of having a relationship with the physician and other members of the healthcare team. Dr. Slovin also reminded us that an essential member of a patient's care team is their caregiver. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to discuss various topics related to caregiving. And I think at the very beginning, you'll hear some terms being used differently. You've heard the term caretaker being used. You've heard the term caregiver being used. In this context, we're talking about friends, family members, um, unpaid professional, unpaid caregivers who are helping to care for the patient. And I'll go into that in just a moment a little bit deeper. So in this call, we're going to provide answers to some of the following questions. Who are caregivers and what do they do? How does one make the decision to care for a family member or a friend when they're diagnosed with cancer? 
what is a long-distance caregiver and how does one care for someone living so far away? And what is the impact of caregiving on the physical and mental health of the family, the friends, and the other loved ones of a patient? We're also going to touch on how a caregiver can cope with special occasions such as holidays, vacations, like holidays like the 4th of July that's coming up and other similar events. How can caregivers bring back a sense of balance into their lives and maintain their own health and wellness? And when is it time for the caregiver to seek support or help, and from whom can they seek that support? So I ask you this question. Is cancer a family matter? Some people feel that they need to take care of this disease or the whole experience of this disease by themselves. But it is important, and you heard Dr. Slobin address the importance of having someone there to help the patient go through this journey, especially since it can go through different phases and it can go over different periods of time. So how does one make the decision to take on the responsibility of caring for a husband, a son, a brother, or a friend living with cancer? We often automatically turn to family members to become the caregivers. However, across the world, Families no longer follow the traditional model of dad, mom, brother, and sister. So as a result, it's a good idea for patients to look outside the family structure when trying to decide who your caregiver can be. Oftentimes, one may not have a choice to be or not to be a caregiver, and often we are unprepared to fill the roles and responsibilities of being a caregiver. So who is a caregiver? So we've used that word quite a bit. Nowadays, they call family caregivers also informal caregivers. And these are unpaid persons who provide physical, practical, or emotional care to patients in their home or other health care setting. About 66 million people serve as informal caregivers to someone who is ill, aged, or disabled. Most caregivers are women, but the percentage of males is rapidly increasing. And so males also decide to step in as the caregivers, sometimes because they want to and other times because they just don't have a choice and the patient has no one else to to help them. There are even children and adolescents who serve as caregivers. And honestly, there are times when a patient is alone and has no support system to find a caregiver. What does one do at that time? Well, Mr. Chesler later on is going to address this concern a little bit uh, more in depth. Trying to provide physical, emotional, and often financial support for any caregiver can be very stressful. But what happens if there is a long-distance caregiving situation? Are the roles the same? How can a caregiver care for a patient who lives in another city, state, or country? Is being a long-distance caregiver even possible? As one caregiver said to me, that can't be done. How can you be a caregiver if you don't live with the person you're supposed to be caring for? I am positive that many of you listening on this call know exactly what I'm speaking of because you are a long-distance caregiver. And in that role, you have a unique set of circumstances. But with preparation, planning, and preventive action, This experience can be a wonderful opportunity to develop new strategies, traditions, and new memories across the miles. And I'll briefly address some of these areas in my discussion. And I'll also touch on how a caregiver may need to make some adjustments when trying to care for a loved one who lives far away from them. Some of these adjustments are strategies that promote self-care. Self-care is critical when caregivers find themselves dealing Um, with any type of uh, uh, patient and all the numerous and complex um, activities that they need in their care. But it becomes even more stressful and complex if there's long-distance caregiving or holiday and during holiday celebrations. So I'm going to ask you to um, join me on this brief reflection. Let me ask those of you on this call to close your eyes for a moment and picture a loved one or a friend who may live in another part of your city, state, or country. What types of things come to your mind? Do you wonder what they're doing at that moment? Do you wonder if they're healthy? Do you wonder what types of new things are happening in their lives? These are normal thoughts that enter our minds when we think of someone who lives a distance from us and who we care for deeply. Now shift that thought to think of someone that may live from you, far from you, and is ill. 
you may have the same questions, but now they are under the umbrella of concern for that ill person. During this brief exercise, you may have thought of your loved one who is living with cancer at this moment. For those of you who live with a close or you know, close to the family member or that individual, those questions may be answered just by walking across the room or by getting in a car and driving a short distance to see them. But there is a growing number of long-distance caregivers across the world. So what do they do in these situations? And what is a long-distance caregiver? The National Council on Aging proposed a definition that says it's a person who lives an hour or more away from the loved one who needs their care. Now, in many large cities, there's, you know, many of us live an hour or more away from any family member that we have. So even that distance is, I guess, interpreted by the individual. Now, there's no doubt that distance poses a barrier to the caregiver, but there is published evidence that sharing that those even who live a long distance can always provide essential support to their loved one. Long-distance caregivers provide advice, financial support, decision-making support, and are critical in providing help during a crisis. These can be rewarding experiences for the caregiver. Being a long-distance caregiver, though, can also be challenging. Oftentimes, there may be feelings of frustration or guilt. For instance, there may be thoughts of, I'm not doing enough. Perhaps there is fear and uncertainty about the changes in their loved one's physical and mental health and many other similar thoughts. The combination of these thoughts may contribute to the stress and distress of a caregiver, whether they're long distance or not. In addition to these feelings, the roles and responsibilities of the caregiver will change throughout the cancer experience. So what are the responsibilities of a caregiver? Caregivers are persons who help a patient with their day-to-day activities, such as bathing, getting dressed, or preparing food and eating. Caregivers can form caregiving teams so a person isn't, one person isn't responsible for doing everything. So depending on what point of the journey that cancer patient is at, the support that a caregiver needs will change and vary. So I'd like to take a moment now to just move on and talk about stress and how it can affect the physical and mental health of caregivers. Stress is defined as the point to which life situations are regarded as uncontrollable or uncertain. This type of stress, though, is not always harmful. For example, we can experience stress during a job interview or the first time we're trying something new, like learning how to swim. It tends to go away once that situation is resolved. Caregiver stress, on the other hand, is generally harmful to the caregiver's health. It's defined as the unequal exchange of helper assistance amongst people. This imbalance can result in perceived tension and fatigue on the caregiver. And some of the symptoms that that result um, from the stress and caregiving would be a caregiver feeling overwhelmed or being irritable or tense or having, again, that lack of control or uncertainty. Often caregivers can feel isolated or they can feel that they have no one to help them, no support system. These types of feelings are normal and common feelings for a caregiver. However, there are studies suggesting that there are more harmful consequences impacting the caregiver's physical and mental health. These include extreme fatigue, problems with sleep that can be not sleeping enough, waking up, having interrupted sleep, um, having a hard time falling asleep, changes in weight, either gaining or losing weight, and other similar type of challenges. Effects on the caregiver's emotional health can include feelings of anxiety, sadness, or even depression. The combination of these systems, uh, these symptoms form caregiver burden, and ex- if experienced for a long period of time, they can lead to long-time, uh, long-term stress. Pardon me. Now, such attacks on the immune system, such as long-term stress, can also increase a caregiver's chance of developing chronic health problems, such as heart disease or high blood pressure. So you understand now that there are some negative aspects of being a caregiver, things that you have to watch for, and that's why self-care is so important. But now I'd like to focus a little bit more on some of the positive things that people have reported in being a caregiver. And these are thoughts that have been expressed by caregivers. Caregivers have said to me, I have a more accepting attitude of life. I adjust to things I can't change. That shows that a caregiver is has acceptance and adaptation to the situation that's going on. 
Another has said, it's taught me to be a strong person. That individual learned of their inner strength that they had or the resiliency that they had as they became a caregiver. Another told me, as a caregiver, I've met people who became my best friends. So the caregiving situation can also be an opportunity to build new interpersonal relationships. Others have said, I have found a deeper sense of purpose in life, and that also then focuses on building spirituality in an individual. And all being a caregiver seemed to help one integrate negative experience into their world in a meaningful way. So there's no doubt that being a caregiver can uh, affect uh, the mental and physical health. So an important thing to remember is to keep tabs, for the caregiver to keep tabs on their own physical and mental health. Caregivers, whether close or long distance, must take the time for self-care and to focus on their needs. They need to be reminded that by taking care of their own health, the caregiver and the person being cared for will reap the benefits of being uh, or of having, excuse me, a healthy caregiver. However, if there are times a caregiver may feel especially overwhelmed, frustrated, frightened, or even deeply sad or blue, it's time to seek help from others. Fortunately, nowadays, Healthcare professionals recognize that caregiver stress and burdens are risk factors to a person's health. And you heard Dr. Sloan talk about the times that she has to deal with caregivers and their needs went during clinic visits. So, And that takes away, she made the point that that takes away from the time that she needs to have with the patient. So remember, there are social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, spiritual leaders, nurses, and others who can help manage these feelings. And there's also... Uh, resources such as cancer care, which can provide different types of assistance, including online support groups for those of you um, that may not live right next door to cancer care. So very briefly then, I'd like to move to the topic of having strategies for being proactive and planning ahead for special occasions. Let's begin by discussing ways to manage the chaos associated with special times. One helpful strategy is to develop a special occasion preparedness plan. This plan would be similar to a hurricane or tornado preparedness plan. It would map out the details of how to prepare for those special events. The plan can also allow the caregiver to make some trade-offs in their world when trying to care for a loved one during special times. And if you are a long-distance caregiver, here are a few suggestions to keep the connections open between you and your loved ones to share those precious holidays. To help with your holidays, set up a web camera so you can actually see your loved ones. FaceTime is also an excellent way to talk to them or have um, actual interaction with the individual. Regular communication such as this may be, may be able to give you peace of mind. You can even prepare your own video clips of past holidays. Give a snapshot of memories from the past and share them with your loved one. So even if you're not there physically, you are there in spirit. You can now create new traditions. Even if you cannot be there in person, some of these activities can become new traditions for you, your loved ones, and your family. So I'd like to also just address uh, momentarily the healthcare professionals listening in on this call. There are steps that we can also take to help caregivers. First, even if we just take a moment to acknowledge the caregiver when they are present at clinical visits, a simple remark such as, I would like you to know that you're an important member of the healthcare team would be so important or even going a step further by stating, we appreciate everything you do to take care of your husband or son or brother. These simple remarks acknowledge the caregiver as being valued and important, and it can empower a caregiver to ask for support. Second, remind the caregivers about the need for self-care and inform them that self-care is essential in providing good quality care to their loved ones. For example, you may say, Miss Texas, Texas, taking care of yourself is as important as taking care of your uncle, your husband, or your son. Third, if possible, provide the caregivers with information regarding resources that may be helpful to them. Information coming from a member of the health care team is valued by a caregiver. So when a, care, a team member goes out of their way to provide information, it can make the caregiver feel special and increase the likelihood of following through and seeking those resources. Finally, and most important, I ask again for the caregivers to keep tabs on your own physical and mental health and when needed to seek professional help from services such as those that will be discussed by uh, Mr. Chesler in just a moment. Remember, you and the person you are caring for 
will reap the benefits of a healthy caregiver. My colleagues and I look forward to hearing um, your questions or even some of the suggestions that you may have uh, for our caregiver listeners. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you, and that concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Talos. That was really wonderful and very helpful to everybody on the call, um, covering so many different areas and really coming across with the things that really will help a caregiver to to really um, get the most care, not only for the person they're caregiving for, but also for themselves. And, and indeed, I do want to echo what Dr. Palos has said. We do appreciate your questions, but some of you may have some strategies that you have found to be helpful. So during the Q&A section, we're happy to take any of your comments that you found to be particularly helpful as a caregiver in your coping. So thank you. Thanks, Thanks for reminding us about that, Dr. Palos. And our next speaker is Mr. Andrew Chesler. Mr. Chesler is an oncology social worker and he's our Men's Cancer's Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Mr. Chester is going to review Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Chester. Thank you very much, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be uh, part of this call today. And as Carolyn said, I'll review some of what Cancer Care does, and I, I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network uh, when you're a caregiver um, and how Cancer Care can be part of that network. There are several ways we might be able to help. So just uh, to begin by telling you that Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer, a person who's diagnosed with cancer and or a caregiver. Uh, cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, educational programs such as this one, and education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system. Uh, practical help, um, we do have some limited financial assistance for uh, patients, but that is also meant to be for home care as well. Um, we won't cover all the costs of your home care, but it may provide some relief uh, and an opportunity to, to connect with us as social workers. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers. All our services are completely free of charge. So oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer uh, affects a person and their family and his or her family and friends, again, and uh, caregivers, of course. And we're experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, the physical, and the financial challenges that can arise uh, after a cancer diagnosis. And um, adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. And it's, of course, important for caregivers as well. Asking for help, whether that's by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling, is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York area, uh, as well as telephone and online groups nationally. We have groups for patients, but we also have groups for caregivers. Uh, these groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people uh, who are impacted by cancer, um, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to help facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in a similar situation can be a very powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and an important sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance and lessen feelings such as isolation that may come about from the stress of caring for someone with a cancer diagnosis. As we've learned from the other speakers in today's uh, program, there's a lot of information uh, to digest and to talk about. Uh, our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your family. A uh, cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider questions that you might want to ask and to help get the answers and the information that you need. So please remember, you are not alone. Cancer Care Services are here to help you. Please contact us at 1-800-813-HOPE. That's 800-813-4673. Or log on to our website at www. 
cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. So thank you for your attention and the opportunity to talk to you today, and um, we'll talk more in a moment. Carolyn? Okay. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Andrew. That was a wonderful presentation. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, Ayala to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your questions, I will be sure at the very end to give you hints of how to get your questions addressed and answered if we don't get to your questions. But let's try to see if we can't get to as many as, as possible right now. So Ayala, if you could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one. Okay, and we have a, a question in front of our online participants. Um, and um, so I'm going to just try to give to Dr. Sloven. Um, so this question is, what things should I encourage my husband to do to prevent reoccurrence of his prostate cancer? He is 79 years old and active. Are there foods, exercises, et cetera, that can help? So again, Dr. Slovin, this is a, if you could ask this question, if you could address this question in a general way, and of course we will encourage um, our, our caller to go back to the treating healthcare team. Um, about this. Great. Thank, thank you for the question, uh, and I will try to be as broad as I can. For any patient, I mean, I don't know, obviously, about what where your husband is in terms of his treatment, whether he's in remission and is where the hope is to keep him that way. Let's put it this way. Normalcy is what we want. I always encourage all my patients, irrespective of their age, irrespective of their medical problems, to remain active. You sit around, you have more aches and pains when you get up, and then everybody panics and thinks, oh my goodness, it's the cancer. The more you do, the looser your joints are, the more tired you are at the end of the day, and you can actually sleep very well. In terms of diet, I usually recommend a low-fat diet, so fish, chicken, white meat, turkey, no more than four ounces of a good cut of beef, maybe once a week, even twice a week. Uh, the fat is more of the problem. Alcohol, certainly in moderation, although for some people, moderation to them is a half a bottle of wine, which is not what I endorse at all. More than four ounces of wine is not considered to be salubrious to the health, so I tell people to be very cautious about what they do. But I would urge your husband to maintain a schedule. I think a lot of people, once they start retiring at the young age of 70, suddenly realize that they're sleeping late. They're like a bunch of kids that are staying up late. And as a result, they they just don't follow a schedule. And uh, a lot of men have always worked and followed a particular course of a daily routine. It's that routine that keeps people sane. It's that routine of getting up at the same time every day and eating a standard meal and then doing what you do to stay active is really going to keep you alive a lot longer. And remember, mobility is very important. It keeps the bones strong. Whether or not to take calcium, vitamin C, vitamin D, that really should be discussed with your physician in terms of requirements based on physiology. I hope that helped. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and would anyone like to add anything to that? Any, any, okay. Um, so here we have another question, um, and I'm going to, um, I think, start perhaps Dr. Palos, if you could address this question. So um, my father has stopped many of the activities and hobbies that he used to enjoy. How can I encourage him to continue doing the things that give his life meaning? So again, a general question. But oh, if you could, excellent uh, question. Excellent question. We see that happening so many times, not only with um, the patients who are going through the cancer experience, but also the caregivers. 
So one of the, there's a couple of things that you can suggest. One is just you know sit down and have a candid conversation and ask what you know why is it you're you're you don't want to get involved in these? Why why did you lose your interest? You don't have to phrase the questions that way, but you know what I'm trying to to say. Explore it. Explore the reasons why they feel that they don't want to do that anymore. And if there's some you know, objection like, oh, I'm too tired, I just don't have this, you know, I don't want to see my friends, I don't want my friends to see me like this. Those are, you know, you can encourage, I think like Dr. Slovin said, that exercise is so important. In the past, we used to say when someone was ill, you know, we didn't want them to do any type of activity. We wanted them to lie in bed and just rest and rest and rest. And then we had studies come up that showed, uh-uh, you know what's better? If someone gets up and moves and moves and moves. So that's one thing, is to encourage the patient and remind them that by not doing things, it's going to be harmful to their own health. So they need to get active. The other thing we have found is that when the, the studies have found is that when someone isolates themselves, that also tends to have an effect on their health and not a good effect. So the more they're out and socializing with other people, it, again, helps them from a psychological perspective. Um, we need people. That's why we are on this earth with so many people. People need people. So it's good to have that interaction, and you also then get that that social support that's there. And if that still doesn't convince someone, then another option would be to invite friends that they've had to the home and set up some own, some of your own activities there, whether it be it could be a book club. It could be he was a bridge player or a card player, some kind of card game or, you know, different activities. Food is always good to have, following the parameters that were outlined there by Dr. Sloman. But if you have food and you have a comfortable atmosphere, then I think that also then engages the person and makes them realize how comfortable they can be by engaging in those type of activities. Carolyn, I'd like to just ask one yes. thing to that, that wonderful uh, discussion, and that yes. is that patients very often do not hear exactly what the doctor says. And I'm... Uh, I've been in a position where many a patient has some hearing deficits, even though they have somebody with them. And it's amazing. Uh, we had a patient who went out into the waiting room with a son and a wife, and all three heard completely different things. And it was pointed out to me by another patient who happened near the conversation. The patient heard me say that there was some sort of limitation, yet the wife didn't hear it, nor did the son. And frankly, I didn't say the patient had any limitations, and I provided him with options for treatment. But sometimes patients' hearing is not very good, and as a result, they may miss something. And sometimes they don't even, are not even forthcoming about not hearing you, and they're too polite to ask. And they walk out of the room with a completely different take on the visit. So anytime someone comes in a little bit more or leaves more depressed or is depressed at home, I would actually address it as a family member and say, you know, what, what's your understanding of what Dr. X said to you? Did Dr. X, did you, did you enjoy the visit? Is there something about it? And you'd be amazed at the perturbations that you will hear on the thought processes because people didn't hear what the doctor said. That's such an important point. That is true. Um, and All my patients are older men, and they tend to lose very high-frequency portions of uh, of their hearing. And uh, some of it is occupational, some of it is just aging, but it is just amazing how I spent 45 minutes in a room discussing treatments, and the patient heard very little of what I actually discussed and went home thinking that I had said something very, very different, which I thought was extremely, it was just very disturbing to me, and I felt awful for the patient. And I'd like to bring up something from a cultural perspective. I think in many cultures, um, men uh, rely on the women in their families to take care of their health. And so when they do go to these visits, sometimes our our patients may just kind of tune out because they really believe that the person they came with is going to take in all that information. So we need to encourage. I think one of the things that I've heard them a, a lot lately is self-care. And I even had one patient say, what does that mean? What does self-care mean? Well, it means that sometimes patients have to get, you know, get involved in their own care. They have to do some kind of action themselves also. Now, some of you listening and as patients do this very well, but 
but there are others that sometimes are a little reluctant to get involved in their own care. Some of it could be because you just don't feel comfortable with doing some of the things that you're being asked to do. But that's, again, when you can communicate with your healthcare team and ask them and say, I don't feel very comfortable with this. Can you show me, you know, how it would be beneficial? Or can you tell me about the diet? I thought that was an excellent question, asking about what types of things um, I can encourage my husband to eat. But remember, at this point, it's going to be important, no matter what your age is, it's going to be important for you to try to manage some of your own health. That's what's going to help. Um, your rehabilitation uh, as you go along with your cancer journey. I'm just going to add to that one second. I don't mean to belabor a point, but uh, Dr. Paulus is absolutely right on target about autonomy. Cancer takes away your autonomy. You You have to depend on somebody at some point, whether it's somebody taking you to and from your appointments, somebody accompanying you, somebody helping you get dressed, or just uh, having to have an aide in the house just to do your uh, activities of daily living. For many a person, that's just not acceptable. I actually had a patient who was in his 80s who uh, had some problems with his kidneys and had some tubes that he had to drain every day. And when I spoke to the wife, she said, yes, she's been doing it several times a day. And I said, why? So she didn't answer me, and I looked at the patient. I said, may I know why you're not doing this? I said, do you go to work every day? He says, yes, of course. I said, are you able to manage at work? He was a jeweler, and he says, yes, I do the bills, I do everything. I said, so why can't you, when you go to the bathroom, just empty out the the bags? And he looked at me, and that was the last time his wife ever emptied out the bag. So autonomy is everything. We want our patients to take over and be functional. So sorry to add that, but I I just had to. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point, though. Very very good point, actually. Excellent. And and Andrew, do you want to add anything to that from your experience with people who you're working with um, in the groups and individually as well? Well, sure. There, um, I was, since we brought up the term self-care, I was going to mention something about it from maybe a slightly different point of view and self-care for the caregiver as well and to broaden the uh, idea of self-care to include emotional well-being and uh, things that you can do that keep you engaged in your life and that just simply feel good to do, and not from any medical point of view, but um, things that you enjoy, taking a walk, something as simple as that, going to the movies, whatever hobbies, activities that you do, how important that is to keep the normalcy of life. Um, so that's really just to echo Dr. Palos and Dr. Slovin. Um, being active, uh, keeping a routine, but also the routines of things that you like to do. Equally important for caregivers uh, for whom caregiving can sometimes be stressful in a job in itself. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and we have a question from Mr. Chesler here. It says, how can I find an oncology social worker? So <laughs> do you want to comment on that? Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. Well, the the most uh, direct way, since you're speaking to us here at Cancer Care, and we're all oncology social workers at Cancer Care, the organization that Carol and I all work for, is to call us, and um, we will be uh, pleased to speak with you. We can uh, provide someone for you to speak with regularly by telephone if you happen to be in the New York uh, metropolitan area. You could uh, meet with us in person at our offices, and um, I'll mention our number again. It's 800-813-4673. Of course, you can, uh, if you are being treated or taking care of someone who's being treated at a hospital, virtually all hospitals have a social work staff, and by all means, seek that person, uh, seek seek out the social work staff at the hospital. But um, do call us, and we can help you with that. Uh, Excellent. And we actually will also help, as I think Andrew said, uh, you to find both getting services from cancer care, but also if indeed there is uh, an organization close to where you live or or you wanted to find something that you can go to in your own community, we also can help to connect you with those resources as well. So um, I would say we're a good place to start, absolutely. And um, since you're on the call, as Andrew said, it makes sense to go ahead and call us right away after the call, and we'll be happy to help help out in any way we can. Um, um, and... Um, so we have a question just about um, from one of the participants, from one of our online participants, really about managing pain. Um, and um, 
so um, I wonder if um, Dr. Um, Slovin, if you can say something about just uh, the caregivers really, uh, con the question really has to do with just taking care of someone who's in, in, dis in discomfort and pain and and um, how they can work with the healthcare team around that. Sure. Uh, it's an excellent question. We as medical oncologists are trained in managing pain. However, there at most institutions there are what we call pain services with, with people who are trained in oncology and their expertise is pain, making the pain go away, helping the pain uh, be tolerated. And pain can be anything along the lines of just an ache. Pain can be something that is persistent. But the only way to address treating pain is by letting your doctor know that you have a discomfort. So there's a spectrum of pain from achiness to throbbing to burning to intermittent to persistent to fleeting. There's a lot of adjectives that we use. So we have more in our armamentarium now than you can possibly imagine. Even steroids are used for pain. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things that are out there, and I think the biggest detriment that we often find is that patients don't acknowledge that they have pain. Uh, the caretakers should be advised that their role is to speak about pain on behalf of the patient if the patient is unwilling to make mention of it. So I've had patients come to clinics saying that they had no pain, and yet the wife or caretaker will say, what do you mean you had no pain? You were up all night. You were groaning. You were this. You were that. And what that tells me is the patient is in mortal terror that he or she might have to go on to a, a drug that is an opioid or is a morphine derivative. And a lot of people equate that to impending death, and that could not be farthest from the truth. These are a class of drugs that we use any time along the treatment continuum. It has no implication that somebody is on the precipice of an event. It's used to control the pain, and sometimes when you end up treating the pain and therefore treating the underlying cancer as well, that pain can actually get better. Uh, in fact, I had a patient who was on 240 milligrams of morphine, and a lot of people often say, oh, I'm going to get addicted, I'm worrying how I can avoid getting addicted. You don't get addicted. Yet there are addicting or addictive personalities, no question, but people at 240 milligrams of morphine can actually be weaned down once their treatment is working. And this one particular patient with treatment was weaned down literally to a Percocet in the course of weeks. So you're not going to be addicted. You don't have to be on that drug forever. A lot of times it can be used in parse and parcel of doing other conjunctive treatments. So please keep in mind, please don't call people on a Friday afternoon at 435 and say, I ran out of my pain medication. One should always be aware of having enough medications. And again, you are not alone. Now, that's an excellent point about running out right before the um, running out of medications on Friday afternoon or before a long we have Fourth of July weekend coming up before a long weekend or we have um, people going off on a, perhaps a trip somewhere and remembering they have no none of the medications. And Carolyn, um, I would say one thing to people, and that is uh, some patients are taking medication, and just like taking a blood pressure medication where when you're on the medication, your blood pressure is under better control, the same thing is due, uh, same thing is seen with patients who are on pain medications. You should never abruptly stop your pain medication. You will go into a pain crisis, and very often that means somebody has to come to the emergency room, get the intravenous form of the same pain medication so that they're able to have their disease back under their, I should say, their pain from their disease under control and then go back onto their orals. Never, ever, ever stop your medication cold turkey. If you feel that you don't need as much, then work on tapering or lowering the dose gradually along with the healthcare professional who oversees these drugs. Excellent. And Dr. Pellis, you want to say something about the role of the caregiver sometimes in actually being sure that that, that working with the person um, with uh, cancer to kind of help them to be sure the prescriptions are kind of refilled and things like that. How is that? Uh, do they have a role here? Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, actually, I, I, I appreciate you bringing up that point. 
So what, especially right now, you mentioned about the vacations and things. One of the things that a caregiver can do to prepare um, for situations when you're traveling and there might be the risk that the medication was forgotten or you run out is to be sure and have a list of all the medications that a patient is on, the doses that are there. Also, let your pharmacist know that you are going to be going on a vacation and you know, find out from the pharmacist what, what are their policies toward you know, filling um, prescriptions if you're out of town and something happens? Uh, for example, a patient recently went out of town in the hill country where they were pretty isolated from a lot of um, different places, especially the local drugstore or pharmacy. So um, they, you know, she found out she had left her medication at home and um, was panicked. Um, so she was able to contact someone in our in our office. And so what we suggested to her is, you know, um, we we were able to get in touch with her pharmacy, and her pharmacy was able to call a local pharmacy that was closer to her, so and gave her enough medication to cover her for the few days that she would be there, and then be able to come back home. So those are things that you're, you know, when you you need to prepare. These are the kinds of things that you don't even really think about until you know you get there and you're in that situation. So find out the pharmacy's policies. You know, nowadays we have so many resources like Google. Find out what Google and find out where the local pharmacies are, wherever it is that you're going to vacation. And even if you're not going to vacation, it's good to have this information because as a caregiver, you may decide to go out somewhere to go have dinner maybe with someone else. And if that situation happens with someone who's kind of stepped in your shoes, it's good to have that information readily available. You can just pin it up on the refrigerator or something. But the medications, the pharmacy to call, and knowing what the pharmacy's policies are will be very helpful. And, you know, pharmacists will, re- can, you can set up a reminder system with some pharmacists to remind you when your prescriptions are due for refill. And the pharmacists, we don't, the pharmacists can sometimes, if you are stuck in a bind, they can sometimes do what they call an insurance override, but the pharmacist has to do that with your insurance company. They often can do that if it's for a couple of days exactly. when you're not able to reach anybody. Um, sometimes they can't. And I guess with pain medication, Dr. Sloven, those are written usually with particular, they need to be refilled. Is it a, is a, the description for a period of time? Or is it usually for a month? Or how does that there, It depends. You know, Carolyn, it's an excellent question. It really depends on the pharmacy. For example, New Jersey has very strict laws about even moving your prescription to another pharmacy that could be under the same name. Each one is different, and uh, you really need to be very, very cautious about this. Also, if a pharmacist is not uh, is is reluctant to give you medication, we need to know. I got into battle with a pharmacist recently. Actually, it was a pharmacy technician, which made it even worse about dispensing drug. Now, the drug was supposed to be 90 pills, and the pharmacist, uh, the pharmacy technician, only had 60, and was so literal, refused to give the 60. And I had to escalate this, and I said, how can you say the person just needs really now two pills? Give him the 60, and don't worry about the 30 you owe him. But that's the kind of mentality, and something like that, please call your doctor, call your nurse. We do battle all the time. Nothing gave me greater pleasure than dealing with this one because uh, there were apologies to the patient ad nauseum. So really, let us know. That's what we're here for. It's just another thing that we do in our day. Right. You can see you have a very active healthcare team right there, um, and all of you have access to a wonderful healthcare team. And and um, it's important that you take these messages back and and really work with your healthcare team, particularly if you're planning to go away, if you have any plans to or the long weekends coming up. Um, we have one coming up soon. Just really check the medications, see when the refills are due. Um, see if you have those refills, and also work with your healthcare team around getting the refills. Um, well, as Dr. Um, Dr. Slevin said, what people usually do that they'll come to you and say, "So my refill is I, this is the last refill on my prescription. You know, how what's the best way for people to handle that when they re, when they realize they're, they just have X amount of pills left?" Actually, Carolyn, mine are usually at 4:55 on Friday afternoon, and then we find out that the pharmacies are closed. <laughs> I see. So we. So we ask you all to kind of really try to call probably during the week if you can, um, and that's really important. Um, and 
and also to find out what the policy is, I guess, of your doctor's office. Well, Dr. Yeah, absolutely. Handling um, calls well, and I think coming in on Friday afternoon? Well, I mean, we, we take calls until exactly 5 o'clock, and then, unfortunately, we go on voicemails. But we really think that you should leave yourself with two or three days' worth of pain medication and then call because it takes two or three days sometimes for insurance companies to be involved. Sometimes pre-certification is needed. It, it's a very different world in which we live now. Even though we do things by e-prescribing on the computer, nevertheless, sometimes there are insurance constraints or pre-certifications that cannot be done at 5 of 5. You know, we can do a lot of things at 5 of 5. We don't really care if we're there till 6 or 7 o'clock at night. But the rest of the world closes at 5, and when you need to get a pre-certification, it just can't happen at 5 o'clock at an outside institution or an office, unfortunately. Wow. Um, and we have, I guess, a late-breaking question from one of our participants, um, actually about um, dealing with um, caregivers um, who are concerned about um, really um, bereavement issues around they're really looking into the future. It's one thing that human beings can do is we anticipate into the future and worry about um, what will happen and how will we cope with the loss of someone we love, especially when someone is diagnosed with serious illness. Um, and Dr. Palos, can you address that to start with? Oh, that's an important question and something that's always anticipated with cancer or any other type of chronic disease. Um, I think one of the first things to do is uh, go again to Cancer Care website. They have some excellent material online, and um, the oncology social workers can also help work with that. I think one of the things that's important to remember is that you know palliative care and hospice care are both very important, and what they're imp the reason they're important is because they give um, supportive care. So. Even though people associate that with the end of life, palliative care or, or palliative care is supportive care that can be going on during the whole time that a patient is ill with cancer. So when the times get into hospice, that's a good time then to start talking to your spiritual leaders that you have. It's a good time now. I, you know, people talk a little bit more freely about you know what are their plans? Do they wish to be cremated? Do they wish to be buried? So it's good to have all of those things in place, you know, so uh, your family won't have to, you know, be doing all of that at the last moment and scrambling for that at the last moment. So if you can just, it's it's uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable discussion, you know, but it's one that if you deal with it early, it won't be so painful um, toward the end of time. And advanced directives are very important also to have them prepared and to let not only your healthcare team that know that you have those advanced directives, but also to um, let your family members know what your wishes and preferences are. If I can just say one second, because I know we're we're very close to closing, and that is to be assured that their doctors are going to be with them. And I think that's a very, very important point that has to be made. And I would say that for the most part, all doctors will be with that patient until whatever event occurs. And um, Andrew, do you want to comment also just on the support of all the kinds of um, groups that we have for caregivers and around these issues that come up and um, around um, anticipating loss and and um, even when someone dies, what what how what services we have available? Sure. Uh, I mean, this is a question that seems uh, can seem very scary if one hasn't spoken about it uh, ever, but um, that in talking about it can provide considerable relief um, once a conversation is underway. Um, we can, of course, help with that. We do have online caregiving groups, some specifically for certain uh, di diagnoses for certain types of cancer. Um, we have uh, phone counseling. I'm just reemphasizing what we said before. And uh, for those of you who are listening and want to talk about these things, you can do that in groups um, or individually with social workers. Uh, I urge you to reach out. Communication is crucial. It's important not to feel isolated, not merely as a uh, patient, but also as a caregiver. Um, that can be a stressful and um, large uh, job. And you need support and deserve support, in it, including talking about uh, concerns or fears uh, of end of life. It's important to be able to talk about those things. So uh, reach out to us. There are other organizations we can put you in touch with uh, at cancercare.org or call us. 
Thank you. And thank you. That's an, that's an important question. It's always a question that rises to people's mind. I think as um, Dr. Sloven and Dr. Palos have said that it, indeed sometimes people begin to worry about those things indeed when someone is diagnosed with cancer. So we recognize that and we're, we're all here to be with you and to help you um, and to give you support. It's really important. Well, uh, this has been an am amazing uh, conference call today. I want to thank our speakers who've been phenomenal. I, I really want to thank each of them. They can't hear us applauding, but we are. And also all of you who've asked such really excellent questions that really enhanced the call today and hopefully gave you some information and all of you some additional information that you can then use with your treating healthcare team. So I did say that I would um, address any questions that we didn't um, have, that we didn't get to. So there's always the questions that we didn't get to, of course, on each call. And then there's a question that comes in after the call ends or within a couple of days and so or weeks. Um, so for any medical questions that you may have um, regarding um, prostate cancer and um, its treatment or just medical concerns you may have, um, I would say often I recommend well, first of all, we do have a number of prostate cancer organizations, all of whom do provide information. Um, and in addition to that, I often recommend the National Cancer Institute um, at 1-800-422-6237. And I shall go and get all this information when you get an evaluation after today's call, so you'll be getting all these resources. And Or you can visit their website at www.cancer.org. They have a live chat feature in which you can actually um, post your question, and one of their information specialists will gather all the information they can to actually give you all the give you help you with with your question, and also help you go back to your treating healthcare team. Because ultimately, of course, your treating healthcare team they actually know all about you, and of course, they are the ideal people to ask a question. But sometimes to have some information um, to bring to their team. On the other hand, I think as Dr. Slobin has said, you know, come to the, to the team, ask them your questions. It's really important because they, they need to address your questions. They know you the best of anyone out there. And if you have any questions regarding just coping as a caregiver or as a person who is their own caregiver or as a caregiver of someone who has prostate cancer, any type of cancer, please do contact Cancer Care, and I, we, I think we've given you the phone numbers on our website. Um, we are here for you, and I think has been said by all of our speakers, we don't want any one of you to think you're alone. You, of course, have your healthcare team, you're treating your physician, all the members of the team, and you have all these organizations that are here to help you. So um, with that being said, I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a good day.